Good morning. I am Pastor Mike. And before we get to today's message, I do want to celebrate two awesome things at E3 real quick. The first is our Serve Tallahassee Thanksgiving distribution, which was yesterday. And real quick, can I get everyone who volunteered yesterday to please stand up and be recognized real quick? Yeah, I'm going to make you do it. Come on. Y'all. Y'all. Thanks to your food and financial donations and the hard work of those volunteers, we served, get this, check this out, we served a record high 208 families yesterday at our food pantry. It was an unbelievable experience. It is a crazy need in our world right now in terms of food insecurity, and this is just an amazing expression of the kingdom of God through this community. So thank you so much, E3. You guys are awesome. And second, we ain't finished yet. Because second, there's more great service opportunities coming up here at this church with our December month of service. For those who do not know, every year as part of Advent, E3 likes to commit itself to a whole month of serving others in this month of December. And this year, we've got projects lined up with W.T. Moore Elementary, Second Harvest, the Kearney Center, Ability First. And we need everyone's help to get this amazing work done. So if you are interested in giving back this holiday season and serving, please go to myE3.org and you can sign up at the uh, December month of service blurb. You can follow that link to the registration. You can pick any of these opportunities and come help out and we can do this together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Awesome. Now, let's get to the sermon. And today we are continuing The Art Of, which is our series on really practicing and mastering these key spiritual disciplines, which we've been pairing with various artistic expressions performed by members of our community, like my, oh my gosh, y'all, my hero, Maribel. Who knows Maribel? Come on. She is... (laughs) She is our uh, E3 Kids Director. She is an amazing artist. She's going to be painting throughout the gathering. And she's just going to be doing that as an expression of worship, as a a way of showing these many beautiful, diverse forms that things like spiritual disciplines can take. And this morning, I'm excited to tell you that we're exploring one of my personal favorite topics, and that is the art of storytelling, or specifically, telling our faith stories. And y'all, if you don't know me, I'm obsessed with storytelling, particularly with how it's seemingly hardwired into our humanity. Don't believe me? Consider this. How do you think about your life? Do you think of it as a cold list of data points? I was born in X, then did Y, then I died. Beep boop. (laughs) Anybody? Or who instead thinks of it as a story? with heroes and villains, twists and turns, climactic moments where it made you into what and who you are. Are you tracking with me? We are fundamentally story-driven creatures, which fascinates me. And this obsession has led me to invest ungodly amounts of time, I'll be honest, into studying and dissecting stories, especially in movies. And in that, I came across this resource several years back that I wanted to share today. And that is Pixar's 22 Rules for Storytelling. Has anyone heard of this? This is an amazing resource. This is actually the animation studio Pixar's real grounded rules that they use when they craft their movies. And y'all, it has some of the most amazing storytelling advice that you're going to come across in any medium. 
Most of it focuses on the act of writing. Things like come up with your ending before writing your middle. Which, by the way, if you've ever written before, that is amazing advice. It has actually changed the way I personally write sermons. But others transcend writing, offering up these insights into how we evaluate stories altogether. I got a few for today that I really love. For example, there's rule number one, and this is a perfect one. We're always remembered that you admire a character for trying more than for their success. Sort, sweet, always true, right? I mean, this is really the thesis of the entire inspirational sports movie genre, right? It's what makes us love a movie like Rocky. It's not because he's successful or wins in the end. It's because we got to watch him struggle, persevere. We don't love characters who've never failed, who've never had to try at something. No, we want characters that we relate to, those who have persisted and overcome odds, whether they win or not by the standards of our world. Or how about this one, rule 16, always ask, what are the stakes? Give us reasons to root for our characters. What happens if they don't succeed and then stack the odds against them doing so? Y'all, this is great advice because stories without real tangible human stakes, they just lose us, don't they? I'll be honest, this is my problem with many modern Marvel movies. Their stakes are either the end of everything, which... (laughs) for me, is unrelatable. (laughs) Anyone else had that on the line on a decision they made? No, I'm okay. Yeah, unrelatable, right? Or their stakes are these things that are just going to get reversed in the next movie, right? The snap. This doesn't make these movies bad. It just means that their stakes, the lack of stakes, can make them feel incomprehensible, meaningless, or honestly just boring, right? Or my personal favorite rule 19, I get this all the time. I think about this all the time watching movies. Coincidences to get characters into trouble are great, but coincidences to get them out feels like cheating. Woo! Yes! Amen! Everyone loves a perfect plan that goes awry because some unexpected circumstance, but who here loves something working out in a story by sheer luck? That's not exciting! Who wants to watch a movie where a character escapes an impossible situation, not through their guile, but because of happenstance, just poof, resolving the conflict? Does anyone like a movie like that? I don't, and y'all don't kill me, but movies like Harry Potter live upon breaking these rules. I got an amen back there. (laughs) Someone feels me. And it's not that this makes this movie or these movies bad. It's more that it just makes them sometimes feel cheap in the end. It makes their resolutions feel unearned, which is just not something we want when we're writing or telling stories. And there's many more. I highly recommend that if you haven't heard of this, go check it out. It's on the internet. These are amazing resources. But I want to start here today primarily to highlight two things. One, that storytelling matters immensely. It shapes our very framework for life in this world and how we interact with it. And two, that good storytelling requires intentional effort, often more than we actually think. To write a good story, you have to reflect on it. You have to work at it. You have to grow in your capacity to know how to do it well. And because of that, what I want to posit today is that these two qualities make storytelling a spiritual discipline that disciples of Jesus must take seriously. Recognizing that as people called to share a story, whose story? 
the story of Jesus. You're overthinking it, Lindsay. The story of Jesus. <laughs> As people called to share the story of Jesus, we're going to need to invest time, effort, and intention into practicing this art in our life. And I want to dive into that. Specifically, though, I want to dive into it through this amazing story that begins Matthew chapter 8 that I think offers very subtle wisdom on this topic. We're going to begin in verse 1 where we read, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Now, despite what you may first think, this is actually a very deeply layered scene. Let me ask you first, what's wrong with this person? Yeah, he has leprosy, right? An infectious skin disease of some sort. And what's he want? Healing. Who thought healing? But did it say that? No, what does he actually request? Jesus, make me clean. That's an odd request, right? Is he dirty? Does he need a bath? Who here thinks this man is asking for a bubble bath? <laughs> Who here thinks baths clean leprosy or cure leprosy? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here at all. No, in fact, this revolves around these two ancient Hebrew religious terms connected to God's holiness that come from the Old Testament. That is being ceremonially clean or unclean. And these are incredibly strange, distant concepts for us today. So they require some unpacking. So let's start with God's holiness. Now, holy is an interesting term. It simply means to be unique or set apart, which means that if I have like a knife in my kitchen that I only use for cutting chicken, that knife is holy. It's kind of weird, right? However, when it's applied to God, it describes God's uniqueness as the creator, as the only being in this entire universe who alone can create life from nothing. That quality, that attribute makes God alone fully set apart from creation, fully holy. And accordingly, the Hebrew scriptures, unsurprisingly, upheld that this unique divine status should shape how humanity interacts with God. That coming into contact with the holy creator of everything required a certain level of respect or reverence, which makes sense, right? And that's what these terms are related to. That's what being clean or unclean are all about. There were these either-or ceremonial statuses that classified whether something should or shouldn't be brought into God's presence, specifically in the temple, based upon whether doing so showed proper respect to God's holiness. And most things in our world were deemed clean or appropriate, but these other broken realities, specifically those in the ancient world that were related to death, illness, or decay, these were considered unholy, antithetical to God's character or intentions for his world. And they were thus deemed what? Unclean, inappropriate to bring into God's presence because is it respectful to bring death into the presence of the author of all life? No. Make sense? Good, because it's only gonna get more complicated than that. <laughs> you see, the scriptures actually complicate this further by then upholding that neither of these statuses were permanent. Why? Well, that's because uncleanness was viewed as infectious, transferable onto people and spaces. Thus, if I contacted something deemed unclean, what happened to me? I become unclean, which is so wildly outside of our modern worldview, right? 
This is not how we think about anything. But imagine it like this. Imagine my dog rolls in mud, right? Then I come home and she runs inside and then jumps right into my lap. Now, did I roll in mud? No, but what happened anyway? Me, my house, everything, everything she touched. Muddy, nonetheless. That's how these realities were understood. If I touched a dead body, then I got death on me and could then spread it onto everything I contacted. Unless, of course, I washed it off first, which Israelites could do through these specific purification rituals that are laid out in everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus, that symbolically cleaned all that death off of us and made us ceremonially clean once again able to appropriately walk into God's space once more, death-free, right? Now, critically, understand, because of this transitive and permanent quality, becoming unclean wasn't inherently connected to moral failure. This is something that we often get wrong when we read the Hebrew scriptures. You didn't have to make a mistake or be a bad person to become unclean. In fact, many viewed it as simply just part of life in a broken world. In fact, sometimes being righteous required it. For example, imagine, do you honor your dead parents by refusing to bury them after they've died? No. No, it's actually your duty, right? To honor your parents. But what would that require you to do? Touch a dead body, right? Which would then make you what? Unclean. You didn't morally fail by doing that. Again, that was your religious duty, but you became unclean nonetheless until you went through these rituals. However, there were still ethical considerations to this system because sure, getting muddy isn't sinful, but would you like it if after Ella jumped in my lap, I then entered your house uninvited and started touching all your stuff, tracking mud everywhere, giving you a big hug when you come home without your consent? Who thinks that would be chill? Who thinks it would be chill for me to do that to God or his space? Would that be respectful to the creator of all life? Absolutely not. Thus, understand becoming unclean wasn't inherently wrong, but knowingly contacting others or walking into God's holy presence with death all over you without getting cleansed first. Boy, howdy, that was sinful. And I bring all of that up because that's central to today's story. Because you have to understand that leprosy was about as unclean as a condition could get in a Hebrew worldview. I mean, just think about it. Lepers were understood in the ancient world as living people undergoing death's decay before the grave. Who thinks that was appropriate to bring into God's holy space? Absolutely not. In fact, Leviticus provided strict rules they end up preventing lepers from spreading their extreme uncleanness. Lepers couldn't enter the temple at all. They were to live separated from their community, isolated. They were to wear torn clothes. And if approached by anyone, they were to cover their mouth and yell, unclean, unclean, to warn them to stay away. And y'all, above all, lepers were absolutely prohibited from physically touching anyone. 
for as long as they were deemed unclean. And every seven days, a priest could come and inspect them. And if they were cured, they would provide those ceremonial washings. They would declare them clean. And only then could that leper return home, return to their community, exit their isolation. But if not, they'd remain isolated for another seven days. On and on it goes until they were cured. Which meant indefinite isolation for anyone with the bad luck of catching some form of incurable leprosy. Can you imagine? You get sick, no fault of your own, and you have to isolate from everyone for pretty much the rest of your life. Y'all, we went through a relatively brief season of isolation and everyone lost their ever-loving minds in this world. Am I right? We know the damage this can cause to a human being psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And with that constant, I want you to reconsider this scene because I think it becomes much more heartbreaking, doesn't it? This man isn't trying to get his rash healed. He wants to go home again. He wants his isolation to end. He wants to be treated like a human being again. But also reconsider how he's approached Jesus. Did he cover his mouth and yell, unclean, unclean, unclean? No, which means that he's violated the law by approaching not just anyone, but Jesus, the holy creator God made flesh in a way that risks infecting him with his uncleanness. Who thinks that's chill? Y'all, all of this informs his request to reconsider this. Remember, he did not ask, if you are able, then please heal me. What did he ask? He said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. As in, he doesn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal him. What does he doubt? Jesus' willingness to. He doubts whether his God would help him at all because his whole life, he's held a story about a God who can part oceans, who can liberate his people from Egypt, who can lead people to a promised land, and yet who would not lift a finger to help someone as broken as him. You can imagine what he's expecting, right? At the very least, a rebuke, rejection, not worse, but y'all, he approaches anyway because he's that desperate. So check this out. Verse three, Jesus reached out his hand and what? <sighs> Touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Jesus looks at this leper and then he does the unthinkable for his audience. He reaches out and touches him, which according to Leviticus means that either one, Jesus's holiness should become infected by this man's uncleanness or two, God's holiness should obliterate this unclean thing. And yet, is that what happens? No, instead, He's cleansed, he's healed. And y'all, this is powerful. I want you to really sit with this. I need you to understand that Jesus heals a great many people in many different ways throughout the gospels, including with just a word. 
In other words, Jesus does not need to touch this leper to heal him. He chooses to. And that's because I think what's powerful about this story is that Jesus wants to heal more than just his body. I think that Jesus wants to heal this man's mind, his heart, his soul, his very perception of who his God is. Y'all, just imagine this man's been isolated, untouched, grimaced at for so long, all the while left alone with the story about a God who must be separated from and protected from brokenness like his. That is until his God came to him and chose to heal him, not with a word, but with a touch. In front of who? In front of everyone. I think with one touch, Jesus cleansed him, ended his isolation, and gave him a new story about a God who doesn't fear contacting uncleanness, about a God who isn't afraid of being infected by our sinfulness about a God who made it clear through Jesus that it's always going to be in his story the other way around. That in Jesus' story, it's actually God's holiness that reaches out, touches, and infects our brokenness. Not to condemn it, but to heal it, to make it right, to end our isolation, to bring us home again. Can I get an amen? And y'all, if you've ever been made to doubt God's willingness to love you for any reason, then hear me, Jesus' first word to even the most broken person who has ever lived will always be, I am willing. That's the good news story that we have been given that we're called to tell. And to close, I want to get practical about what the story can teach us about the art of telling our own. Jesus stories. I think first it highlights what Jesus' story is always going to be about for people like us, and that is transformation. As Pixar reminds us, good stories require change, movement. Or as said in recovery, every recovery story requires just three simple components. Who was I? What happened? Who am I now? That's true for the leper. That's true for us. I was broken. What happened? I ran into this rabbi who loved me, who touched me, who healed me. Who am I now? I'm a little bit better. I'm a little bit more whole. It's a simple formula. And in that, there's this great news too, which is that it's okay if you haven't experienced transformation yet because y'all, the first step is grace. Did the leopard do anything to earn his healing in this story? No, apparently to get transformed by Jesus, all we have to do first is in faith, admit what's already true about ourselves. I'm broken. I surrender. Heal me. Then we just let Jesus lead us from there because he is willing. That's amazing, right? Who thinks that's good news? Am I the only one? However, that being said, there's some bad news too which is that to have a story worth telling anyone, well, you're going to have to change, (laughs) which none of us want to do, right? Who here likes changing? I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. I hate it. (laughs) Frankly, too many Christians, myself included, at times are just as broken in the exact same ways as the day they met Jesus. They're just as angry, prideful, resentful, judgmental. And that's a problem, Because we can't invite people into a healing story that we haven't first found ourselves, can we? That just makes us hypocrites. 
the leper had a story worth sharing because he was transformed by who? By Jesus, the one who heals. We must be too. If we're gonna go into this world talking about our king, who am I? What happened? Who am I now? That's the what. How about the why? Why do we tell our Jesus stories? And personally, I believe there's two primary reasons. I think first, because it's necessary just for us to continue to grow. Humility, self-honesty, openness, authenticity, vulnerability, such spiritual muscles do not grow in darkness, do they? No, these spiritual muscles only strengthen through practice. Thus, in retelling our Jesus stories, we practice what's necessary for transformation in these ways. And of equal importance in doing so, we also remember who God is in the process. Let me ask you this. Um, Who's been in a hopeless situation only to come out the other side by a power greater than yourself, somehow growing from it, surviving it, thriving on the other side? Anybody? And in those moments, who trusted God? Right? Am I the only one? You're like, amen. I'm going to go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. My life is yours, Jesus. And then who else goes right to anxiously doubting the moment the next thing doesn't go our way? Anybody else? Yo, we are such forgetful creatures, are we not? But in retelling our stories of God's faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion, the ways that he showed up and carried us through what we could not get through ourselves, in retelling those stories, we practice and grow in our capacity to trust. We strengthen that muscle so the next time uncertainty comes around, we're a little bit stronger, a little bit quicker to say, this is not in my hands, a little bit more ready to say, you, God, lead me because I know you're willing. But also second, we retell our Jesus stories to help others. Y'all, this religious exercise, the spirituality thing is not about me, 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 right? No, it's about becoming a conduit of healing to other people. Those who have experienced the healing of Jesus are not allowed to just sit there and glory in themselves. They're called to become conduits of that same healing to the next broken person who needs some good news. I know I'm not the only one. I've been freed from shame so many times by just one other person in a group willing to share their own struggle with that thing that I've been keeping secret. Anyone else? That person who had the audacity to say, I'm broken, me too. Freed me to talk about it, to let Jesus into it, to change. Y'all, when we are open about our brokenness and our transformation, I think we offer hope to those still suffering. Let them know that they're not alone, that there's a way forward, even if it feels like it's impossible in their shoes. If you're alive, let me tell you, there's a story that God wants to share through you to someone else who needs good news. That's just how this works. So that's the what and the why, which just leaves us with the how, right? And this is the one that I'm excited to talk about. Because y'all, Christians have gotten this wrong so often, turning Jesus into something to be sold or some stick to just beat people with. But this story, I think, reveals an alternative vision for how we're called to share our Jesus stories. What are Jesus's final instructions? Does he say, go to your local college campus and just yell at those kids? Anybody? No, he says, keep quiet. Go home and live your life in your community. Apparently, that's our best testimony. 
which I think reveals two just a fundamental truths about this how of kingdom storytelling. I think first that for Jesus, self-promotion was never the goal. Instead, everything was about what? Serving others, inviting the next person to experience God's healing. Thus, how we tell our stories must serve that purpose too. Not elevating ourselves, but pointing others to something bigger than ourselves, towards a God who by grace has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. But second, it also reveals that when sharing our Jesus stories, we're called primarily to show, not tell. Jesus' power isn't best revealed through talking, but rather through how his disciples live but rather through how we share Jesus' story, not by yammering on and on and on, by living it. Don't yell at strangers. <laughs> Instead, just be the new person Jesus transformed you into. Just be that more Christ-like person in your family, your relationship, your work, your classes, wherever God's planted you. And then if someone sees that otherworldly grace, that love, that peace and how you handle conflict and how you handle suffering, how you respond to su failure, when they see Jesus reflected in you and they ask, hey, what's that about? Only then do you say, let me tell you a story about a leper and a compassionate healer, about who I was. What happened when I met Jesus and who I am now? Y'all, that's it. Who here thinks they could do that? We all can do that. That's the art of kingdom storytelling that we're all called to practice if we follow this king. And I wouldn't ask y'all to do anything that I wouldn't. So if you would, allow me to go first. I grew up in a broken church community. And for a variety of reasons, I abandoned religion very young. That is until my early 20s when I found myself just in an abyss. I was suicidal, I was angry, I was depressed, I was full of shame. I was wasting away under what only after loads of therapy, I would come to identify as addiction, mental illness. I'd ruined my life. I'd laid waste to my relational world. Boy, howdy, some people hate me. I was lost. And in that, I held a story from my youth about a God whose holiness meant that he'd never love someone as unclean as me until at rock bottom, I got connected with this pastor named Eric from this weird sounding church called Element 3. And Eric, a total stranger, listened as I, for the first time in my entire life, told another human being about the worst things that I'd ever done, about the broken parts of me that I was too ashamed to share with anybody. And then with tears streaming down my face, I waited for him to crush me to tell me how wicked I was, to scream, repent or burn, sinner. But instead, he looked me in the eyes. He reached across that table. He touched me and he said, gently, God doesn't hate you. He loves you. He's always loved you. I love you. Let me help you. And then he told me his story, how he'd been broken and met this rabbi that loves lost people a rabbi whose grace works best in the most shattered people. How despite being imperfect, he had a story about just how much Jesus could change a life. And the weight of the world, y'all, it just slid off my shoulders. It felt like I could breathe for the first time in years. From there, he connected me to this community of misfits who walked alongside me, encouraged me to get help 
introduced me to Bill, my first sponsor. Help me get sober. Y'all, that encounter saved my life. I was transformed, not by a magic bullet, not by a plot hole, not by happenstance, but by a good God working through imperfect people with transformation stories who, like Jesus, were willing to reach out and touch even broken down wretches like me. That's my good news story. What's yours?